morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship together. Faith Community United Methodist Church, it's good to be with you this morning. I would uh, encourage you to locate the attendance pads that are in each of the pews and fill those out. Pass those along to others worshiping with you this morning so that we have a record of your presence here in worship with us this morning. And welcome to those worshiping online as well. We are glad that you have uh, made the choice to join us in worship this day. Uh, we do not have uh, screens today due to a technical difficulty, so you'll need to pull out the hymnals when it's time for the hymns and, and follow along in the bulletin as well. Uh, this is Coins for Missions Sunday. The blue buckets for your, your coins are out in the narthex. If you didn't drop your coins in the buckets on your way in and you have some coins with you this morning, I'd ask you to drop those coins into the blue buckets on your way out this morning. Those coins that we collect the second Sunday of each month go to support a number of uh, mission projects that we support through this church. So thank you for uh, contributing to that. Uh, our Christmas, I want to say a word about our Christmas offering. We uh, took a special offering for Christmas, and we designated that for our Benevolence Fund because uh, near the end of last year, we discovered that our Benevolence Fund was uh, beyond drained. We uh, actually had used up all of the Benevolence Fund and some more, and we needed to pay that back and get some some more money into that fund so that we could uh, be meeting the needs of our neighbors. And so you responded to that with the Christmas offering, and you responded beyond my imagination. Uh, between the Christmas offering and other donations made to the Benevolence Fund, in the month of December you contributed nearly $7,000 to that fund. So thank you for that, yes. <clears throat> so that means our Benevolence team is going to be getting back together this week. They're going to be meeting this week and getting back to work and meeting the needs of our neighbors. So thank you for making that possible. We uh, don't have a choir this morning, but we are going to have an introit. We're going to sing the introit together. And uh, if you would stand as you are able and turn in your hymnal to number 334, we're going to sing together, Sweet, Sweet Spirit.
morning, if you could remain standing if you're able, and join with me in the call to worship as printed in your bulletin. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of God's name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the water. The glory, glory thunders. The God bound many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of God is full of majesty. Let us praise the name of the Lord. And we can praise the name of the Lord by singing, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, which is number 89 in the hymnal.
Please be seated. And if you would, join me in the opening prayer as printed in our bulletin. Let us pray. God of cleansing waters and purifying fires, touch our lives today to recall us to the power of our baptism and reconfirm our commitment to Jesus Christ. Name us again as your own people, precious, gifted, created to glorify you in fullness of life, in peace with ourselves and one another. Send your Holy Spirit once more to energize our worship and enliven our witness in the world. Hear us as we pray for one another and for your church in every place. Amen. Our prayer hymn this morning is Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart, number 500, and we're going to be singing verses 1, 3, and 5. rest in God's presence now as we come to a time of silent prayer. Let us bow in prayer.
Spirit of the living God, descend upon each of our hearts this day. Fill us with your holy presence. Even as you descended from heaven upon Jesus at his baptism, declaring, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. May you send your spirit upon each one of us, claiming us as your own beloved sons and daughters. May you be pleased in us. May you rejoice in us as we glory in you, our God and our Father. Lord, be with us and through the ministries of this congregation as we reach out in concern and in love to others. Thank you for the generosity of these, your people, who give so that others might receive. And through that receiving might experience you as a God of grace and goodness and love and peace. May you work through us for the good of the people around us. That we might extend your family in this community and beyond. Remind us of the privilege of being your children. And Lord, as your children, we lift up to you our concerns for for others that, that we know are in need right now, and we lift them up to you knowing that you love them even more than we do, and you know all of their needs. And so we just pray to you now to meet those needs in them and in us, that we might see your grace working in powerful ways and give you our praise for it all, through everything Make us grateful, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The ushers come to wait upon us now as we present ourselves to God through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
please join me in the prayer of dedication printed in the bulletin. For bringing us safely to this hour, we give you thanks, O God of wind and fire. May our offerings honor you. May our lives reflect your mercy. May our hands bestow on others the blessings we have received. May our prayers unite us with one another and with Christ, in whose name we celebrate the privilege of giving. Amen. Please be seated.
Thank you, Flo and Jean, for sharing your talents with us. It is our tradition to stand with the reading of the gospel, and the gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke 13, 15 through 17, and 21 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing hook is in his hand to clear his thrashing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of Jesus. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As the people were filled with expectation. That's how our Bible reading for today begins with great expectations. Seems like an apropos reading for the beginning of a new year. New years are often filled with expectation. They are for me anyway. I I wrote in this month's Faith Links about how I feel holding my new weekly planner at the start of a new year with all of those empty pages in it. Like a A golfer stepping onto the first tee, feeling like this is going to be the game. Or or a bowler stepping up to the first frame, knowing that a 300 game is still within reach. 2022 feels a little bit different for many people, though, I know, given what we've been through these past couple of years. I saw a meme around New Year's that said, nobody claimed 2022 as your year. We're all going to walk in real slow, be good, be quiet, don't touch anything. Having been burned by our expectations for the past couple of years, I understand that sentiment of wanting to set the, set the bar low so, so as not to be disappointed once again. Whatever your expectations are for this year, though, good or bad, high or low, it would be hard for us to imagine the mindset of the people living in the time of John the Baptist. The ones we find in Luke 3, whom we are told, were filled with expectation. The expectation that Luke is talking about here is nothing like what we experience at the start of a new year, or a new job, or a new relationship, or whatever it is that we set our hopes on. What they were expecting was something much bigger than all of that. Luke goes on in the rest of that sentence to tell us, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. The expectations with which those people were filled 
had nothing to do with a, a job promotion or, or a nice raise or, or a new girlfriend or a marriage proposal. The people were filled with expectation that the Messiah was coming. Now that is a big deal. The Messiah is the Savior that the Jewish people have been expecting for many centuries, ever since they had lost their sovereignty as a nation. Centuries before, they had been a holy nation, but they had been defeated by a foreign power, sent into exile, lost their homes, their temple destroyed. Eventually, they were allowed to return and rebuild, but never again were they free from foreign dom domination. First, it had been the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Medes, and then the Greeks, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids. Now it was the Romans. But always, all through the centuries, and with every foreign power that came and went, the Jewish people dreamed. And, and more than dreamed, they expected. They expected that they would be a free and independent nation once again, to be ruled over by the Messiah, serving as God's agent on earth, the one who would free them from all foreign dominion so that they could live with God as their only ruler. Luke tells us the people were filled with expectation that this Messiah was on his way. And not just on his way as in, he'll come someday, eventually, Maybe we'll get to see him in our lifetime, maybe we won't. No, their faith went far beyond mere hope and, and wishful thinking. They expected to see the Messiah at any moment, certainly within their lifetimes, probably within that year. They were so certain in this expectation that they were watching for him in every moment. Anybody that, that drew attention to himself as a religious leader raised the specter for them. Could this be the Messiah? And so it was with John the Baptist. As the people were filled with expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. It's easy to understand why they thought John the Baptist might be the Messiah. It had been hundreds of years since a prophet of his stature had arisen in Israel. And there was definitely something different about John, that strange diet of locusts and wild honey the clothing made of camel hair, his constant proclamation of God's message, his practice of cleansing people from their sins through baptism in the waters of the Jordan River, all of this set John apart as someone special and someone especially attuned to God. But John wasted no time in dispelling their notions about him. The Bible says the people were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah, and then it says John answered all of them. He knew what they were thinking about, even before they said it. And he knew that he needed to set the record straight. He proclaimed that the one who was to come was more powerful than himself, claiming, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. John himself was not the Messiah. He is very clear about that. But the people were right in their expectation that the Messiah was coming imminently, that his presence was at hand. In fact, John the Baptist was sent to be the forerunner of the Messiah that had been promised in Scripture. The, the fact that John, the forerunner of the Christ, was doing the ministry he, he was doing was yet another sign that the Messiah was about to appear at any moment. The Gospels are not entirely clear how well John the Baptist knew who the Messiah was. 
He must have had some idea. After all, he had left for joy in his mother's womb, simply being in the presence of Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus. According to Luke, Jesus and John were distant relatives. We sometimes refer to them as cousins, but they were at best distant cousins. Luke tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, were relatives. He doesn't even call them cousins, let alone sisters. But they were related in some way, at least enough that Mary knew who Elizabeth was, and Elizabeth knew who Mary was. That doesn't mean that they were close, though. It doesn't mean that Jesus and John would have grown up together. Certainly not. Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, a temple priest, lived in Jerusalem near the temple. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, some 90 miles away. They may have run into each other occasionally, such as when Jesus and his family went to the temple. You would think, given the momentous meeting between Mary and Elizabeth before Jesus and John were born, that, that whenever their two families did come together, it would have been quite an occasion. You, you would think that John would be reminded each time they saw each other about the dance that he did while still inside his mother. The curious thing about the Gospel of Luke is that not only does Luke not mention any of that, he also says absolutely nothing about the interaction between Jesus and John at the Jordan River. The only one of the four Gospels to name Jesus and John as relatives, who knew each other before they were even born, is also the only one of the four Gospels that doesn't record any conversation between the two 30 years later when Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. John was at the Jordan, baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins, proclaiming the kingdom of God, preparing the way of the Lord, announcing that the Messiah was on his way. But the first time that Jesus comes on the scene, here is what Luke has to say about it. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Luke tells us what John was preaching before Jesus arrived on the scene. And the next thing you know, Jesus has already been baptized. There's no description of his arrival at the Jordan River, no dialogue between the two relatives. There's no, what's up, cuz, long time no see. None of that. There's, there's no protestation from John about him being the one that needs to be baptized by Jesus. That comes from Matthew. There's no pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That comes from the Gospel of John. Luke, the only gospel to tell us that these two were related as children, is also the only gospel that doesn't tell us anything about their interaction as adults. But all four gospels, and Luke is no exception here, all four gospels make it absolutely clear that Jesus is the Messiah to whom John was pointing. That Jesus is the Lord for whom John was clearing the way. And all four Gospels go out of their way to establish the fact that John knew his place and accepted it and always pointed beyond himself to Jesus. One of the ways that John did this was by drawing a distinction between the baptism that he provided, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the baptism that Jesus would supply. I baptize you with water, 
John said. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. One of the things that I love best about being a pastor is that I have the privilege of of baptizing little babies into the church, initiating them into the body of Christ through the waters of baptism. Getting to do that for my own two sons was an extra special blessing. When Nathan was an infant, though, I was still a fairly new pastor, and I had this tendency, which I still do to this day, of of sometimes mixing up my words when I get nervous. Anybody else do that? In the United Methodist Baptism Ceremony, immediately following the administration of water and baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the pastor then marks the sign of the cross on the child's head and says these words. The Holy Spirit work within you that being born through water and the Spirit, you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, when I baptized Nathan, this passage from Luke must have been stuck in my head somewhere because instead of saying to him, being born through water and the Spirit, I said, being born through fire and the Spirit. I knew it had come out wrong as soon as I said it, but what are you going to do? I went on with the ceremony, figuring probably nobody would notice anyway. After the service was over, a a retired United Methodist pastor in that congregation came up to me, and he said with a wry smile on his face, that was a bit unorthodox. (laughs) I knew exactly what he was talking about. I laughed and said, yeah, well. I reasoned to myself that at least it was scriptural, John the Baptist may baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. So my words might have been unorthodox, but at least they were scriptural. They're scriptural, but what do they mean? What did John the Baptist mean when he said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? In the book of Acts, also written by Luke, there is a clear distinction made between water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8 of Acts, Peter and John go to Samaria to share the Holy Spirit with the believers there. Luke says, as yet the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In chapter 19 of Acts, It says that that Paul asked some believers in Ephesus, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he said, Into what then were you baptized? They answered, Into John's baptism. After teaching them about the difference between John's baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit, it says, When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Those of us for whom baptism has become a ritual of the church, performed during an ordinary Sunday morning worship service, sometimes we have trouble understanding the the significance of that distinction in the scriptures between baptism by water, administered by John the Baptist, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, administered by Jesus and the apostles. Isn't The water baptism that we witness in worship, isn't that what initiates us into the church and makes us Christians? Isn't that enough? Is there another baptism that we're supposed to receive? 
John the Baptist made it clear that there was a higher order of reality than the one that he was currently offering. The scriptures make it clear that there is a deeper and more powerful experience than could be brought about by any ritual or ceremony or, or anything that we can control with a physical substance like water. There is a spiritual reality that is available only through the direct presence of God. That is what Jesus brought that neither John nor any other human ever could. The direct presence of God. John the Baptist, for all of his eccentricities, was really just like all of the other prophets that had gone before him. Someone pointing people to God's word and proclaiming the salvation that was to come. But Jesus didn't simply proclaim salvation. Jesus actually is salvation. John the Baptist pointed people to God. Jesus actually is God. The baptism of John was one of repentance, of preparation, of anticipation. The people were filled with expectation because of John's ministry. Through the waters of baptism, John was washing the people clean in preparation to receive the Messiah. He was getting them ready for God. Jesus was and is the fulfillment of that expectation. Through Jesus, we are brought into direct encounter with Almighty God. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are filled with God's presence and power. That's what it means that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's not a separate ceremony that we go through. It's not something that we can do whatsoever. It's something that God alone does, making Jesus real to us and thereby bringing us into the very presence and power of God. Throughout the Bible, fire is used as an image of God's immediate presence. Going all the way back to Moses, Moses' vision of the burning bush that was on fire but was not consumed. God led the Israelites out of Egypt in a pillar of fire. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit appeared as tongues of fire upon the heads of the believers. But fire in the Bible is also an image of judgment, as in the fires of Gehenna, and as, as in the chaff that will burn with unquenchable fire, which John the Baptist mentioned in the very next sentence after proclaiming that the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So which is it, this baptism with fire? Is it God's direct presence burning in our hearts, or is it the fire of judgment? I think it must be both. To those who believe, to those who receive God's grace, he becomes a refining fire, purifying and making holy. To those who refuse, he becomes the unquenchable fire of destruction. It's just as the prophet Malachi had said in his prophecy of the Messiah. He is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. 
then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. But then Malachi goes on to say, See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. What Jesus brings to each one of us is the burning fire of God's presence. For those who refuse him, it is a fire of destruction. That, that is the judgment that John the Baptist and all of the Old Testament prophets foretold. That's the reason that John was so urgent in his ministry of preparing the people for the Lord's coming. That's the judgment that, that confronts each one of us in our response to Christ. But for those who accept God's grace, it will be a purifying fire, burning off the remainder of sin, making us shine in God's glory. I don't know what your expectations are for this year, whether you're setting your sights high or just trying to slide through the air without drawing much attention. It may be that once this service is over, you go right back to focusing on sports or finances or work or politics. But God has something much, much bigger than that in store for you. For to each one of us, a Savior has come. The fire of God's presence is upon us even now. For all who believe, for all who expect God's grace to work wonders in their lives and who welcome him in. That fire will be like the sun of righteousness rising upon us with healing in its wings. Amen. I invite us to, to now sing together about that holy presence of God upon us. If you will stand as you are able and turn in the hymnals to number 347 as we sing together Spirit Song.
May the Holy Spirit be upon you, that the fire of God's presence might enrapture your heart and enlighten your path. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.